everybody. This is Eric Krasno, and you are listening to the Plus One Podcast. I want to thank everybody for tuning in and thank everybody that's been sharing the show and following us on Spotify and subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever. We've been seeing a lot of love on the artists wrapped uh, thing on Spotify, which has been really cool. So yeah, we really appreciate the love and thank you for uh, tagging us in your top lists and all of you that had us in your top podcast. We really appreciate it. Once again, want to give a shout out to Osiris Media. They helped me produce this podcast and they have a lot of other great content. You can check all of that out at OsirisPod.com. So we have a bona fide music legend on the show today. John Oates of the group Hall & Oates, one of the biggest pop duos, if not the biggest pop duo ever. Countless hits and so many tours, and he's collaborated with so many people. I was fortunate to work with him um, for like the big super jam at Okeechobee years ago where we had Mumford & Sons, um, The Meters, Prez Hall Band, Miguel, Mac Miller, and Skrillex, who you'll actually hear a funny story about our collaboration with Skrillex. But yeah, John and I were co-musical directors and got to work on that show um, with my good friend Paul Peck. It was great to work with him and be around him. He's a great guy, and I learned a lot from him. He's put together massive tours for you know, 20, 30 years, so uh, I got to absorb a lot of his knowledge and even more so in this conversation. We're going to get right into it in a sec, but first we're going to hear from our sponsors. He's a great guitarist, amazing musician, producer, writer of countless hit records as part of the duo Hall & Notes. I'd like to welcome today's plus one, Mr. John Oates. So I've been discussing a lot of Philadelphia music the last couple of days because my wife's from Philly. Okay. And her, and her mom, who actually saw you perform at Temple. And she was trying to figure out if it was actually Hall & Notes because you had a lot of different projects during that time period, right? In the in the Philly, early Philly, late 60s temple days. Yep. And uh, what were some of the earliest like bands that you had or recordings that you made? I was in, I was in, I started with a band when I was in eighth grade. Uh, wow. The guys were a couple of years older. They were in 10th grade. Uh, they had a, um, it was a, a guitar, sax, organ, and drums. That was the bass, oh, okay. that was the, the band. And uh, I was only in eighth grade. I was younger than those guys, but I sang and played guitar. And as we found out, uh, I ended up being a better guitar player than the existing guitar player. <laughs> he switched the bass. Okay. Uh, and that became the band. Uh, we added a horn later on, but I was in that group uh, all through high school till 1967. And then um, we, uh, we added a horn, we had a background singer and uh, we were pretty, you know, we we're pretty popular in the area where we lived in, you know, outside of Philadelphia. And then we uh, scraped up enough money to make a record and we made a record and it was around the same time Daryl's group was making a record independently. We didn't know yeah. each other, oh, okay. but both those records were played on the radio at the same time in the late, late in 67. And um, that's how he and I met because we had heard each other's records. Ah, okay. And that was the masters, right? Is that the name? That's the name that's of that. Right, first the masters. Yeah. And he had a group called the Temptons. Yeah. Oh, cool. Were you guys on a label at that point? Well, we were on Crimson Records. And okay. Crimson Records' claim to fame was "Expressway to Your Heart" by the oh, Soul yeah. Survivors. Oh yeah, well, nice. yeah. So um, 
we uh, we actually you know we we recorded it at the Virtue stu- uh, Studio in uh, nor- on North Broad Street. It was owned by a guy named Frank Virtue, and now this is okay. going way back. Okay. But he had he, his claim to fame was Guitar Boogie Shuffle by the Virtues. Oh yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, you know, and that was his. He was the engineer and the, and the studio owner. And so after we had the record, uh, you know, we paid for it. You know, have our own money. A couple cost a couple hundred dollars. Um, <laughs> we took the acetate down to uh, you know acetate. Oh yeah, right? yeah. We, the, the test pressing, basically. Yeah, yeah. For the youngsters out there, that's the vinyl record, you know, where it goes around and you put the needle on. Yeah. <laughs> the black thing, the needle actually cuts a hole in as it goes right, around. Right, 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 with the acetate. Um, so we, we took that down to a place on Chestnut Street in downtown Philly called the Record Museum, which yeah. is a place I used to go to as a kid. It had all kinds of 45s. I mean, amazing 45s, like, you know, like real obscure doo-wop records and all kinds of cool stuff. Cool. Um, we took it down there and literally walked in and there was a guy behind the counter and said, Hey, we just made a record you guys interested. Yeah. And the guy said, Oh yeah, let me hear it. And he literally put it on the player and played it. He went, Hey, it sounds pretty good. Why don't you guys come into the back? We went into the back and there was another guy back there. And, uh, in about 15 minutes, he was putting papers in front of us. Wow. And, of course, we signed everything. We had no idea what we were signing. We just signed it. We thought, hey, we got a record contract. We didn't care. You know? um, and that was it. We, we, we were the second release on Crimson Records. And I think we were the only, the Soul Survivors, Expressway, and my record was the only um, records ever released on that label. Leading up to, to having the band, where you play, was, was your family you know, into music and, and did you, did you pick up music from, from the family environment or was something you kind of went off on your own? I had this, uh, you know, I, I seemed to have a, a musical talent from the time I was very young. I, yeah. I sang as a little, little kid, oh, okay. you know, my, my parents would always trot me out and sing, sing this little song, sing yeah. this little song. And uh, I sang everything from, uh, you know, Italian songs because my, my grandmother was, you know, my mother's side of the family was Italian yeah. uh, to, uh, to you know the you know that the standards of my parents' generation really right. like songs like uh, bells are ringing for me and my gal five foot two stuff like that and uh, you know I'm old enough to remember music before rock and roll right because my parents listened to big band music and so as a really little kid that's what they would play and I heard that so I heard all the great you know big band music and that's really seeped into my DNA and then you know in the early fifties when rock and rolls began basically. I was old enough now to actually realize something new had happened and that I heard it on the radio for the first time. I remember when the Philadelphia station, it was W I B G. They called themselves Wibbage. Yeah. Um, When they made this big announcement, they were going to a a complete full rock and roll format. They were only going to play rock and roll records. And that was like revolutionary. I mean, it seems crazy now. Right. Wow. But I remember, um, you know, looking forward to turning on the radio when they were going to play only rock and roll. And was that what, what brought the guitar to your attention? Was it that, that music? That and the fact that the only person music teacher in this little town where I grew up um, was an accordion teacher. And my my mom, my mom took me down there when I was like six and I I played the accordion. I took two lessons, left it in the closet, never practiced. And then the teacher finally said, Hey, I don't think he wants to play it. Accordion. I said, I said, I hate it, man. I, yeah. I said, I, I just want to play guitar like Elvis. Right, and right. Um, we got a guitar. We ordered a guitar uh, from Sears and Roebuck. 
Yep. I have an acoustic and I've got that. I still was got it like that. a silver tone or a harmony? Yes, or it, was. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. And I've still got that guitar. And, um, Oh, cool. And, uh, you know, little by little, I, I took some lessons from, a, a you know, this woman teacher. Of course I was left-handed. And when I got to my first lesson, you know, my mother actually, I remember my mom saying, well, I think he, you know, he's left-handed. Should he play different? She goes, Oh no, it won't matter. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You know, figuring I probably wasn't going to play, you know, keep at it anyway. So what's the difference, right? right, right. And so I've always played right-handed my whole life. And um, Oh, crazy. So I didn't realize you were actually initially left-handed, though. So was it hard to learn it that way? I don't know. Who I was knows? six years old. <laughs> right. You never tried it the right way, I suppose. How the, hell, how the heck do I know, man? Yeah. I just, you know, I was like, okay. You yeah. know? So I learned, I learned some basic chords and, and stuff like that. And then uh, I taught myself all through the rest of the time by listening to records and things yeah. like that, like so many of us do. Yeah. And then in, in the, in the sixties, I met this guy, amazing guy named Jerry Ricks okay. who became my guitar teacher. And Jerry was a, um, he was a real, um, he was an amazing player himself, but he also was friends with a guy named Dick Waterman who managed Mississippi, John Hurt, Sun House, oh, yeah. cool. uh, Robert Pete Williams and Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee. Yeah. And actually Bonnie Raitt was his girlfriend. Oh, really? Wow. So if you want to know why Bonnie's so good and why she's so oh, authentic, that's nice. the reason. She nice. was actually in the house with these guys. Crazy. Um, yeah, so that's, 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 that's when I really got deep into the roots and the blues because I was learning from the original guys. You know? Yeah. Did, were you listening to like the Philly International music that was coming out or were you, were you checking out the Philly soul? It wasn't coming out at the time. It was, right. pre, pre, it was pre that. Okay. Daryl right. actually, Daryl's first record that he made when I would, when I was made the record with the masters, Daryl's first record came out on Arctic records, which was a WDAS with top uh, R and B station in Philly. And, um, uh, uh Leon Huff from Gamble and Huff, yep. they played on Daryl's first record. Oh, so wow. we kind of grew up with Gamble and Huff and yeah, yeah. we were, we were kind of, they were starting when we were starting. Right. Um, and at a certain point before Daryl and I got our first record contract, we actually had a decision whether we were going to be, become staff writers with Gamble and Huff or uh, go on on our own. And we obviously wanted to move to New York and do our own thing. And, and we signed with Atlantic, but, um, yeah, I mean, we know those guys, Tommy Bell and, uh, you know, Leon Huff, my first, that first master's record, a guy named Bobby Martin, we hired him to help us arrange it. He went on to arrange Backstabbers and uh, yeah. For the Love of Money and wow. became a, one of the Gamble Huff top arrangers. So we all kind of grew up, you know, in the same era. Right, right. And what was the evolution like? You know, obviously you're listening to Mississippi John Hurt and playing the blues. Yeah. How did you kind of evolve into the, a, a songwriter and realize that you had that talent? Well, I always kind of had two identities musically. I mean, you know, in addition to the folk thing and the, and the, the roots thing that I was doing, I was also going to the Uptown Theater on North Broad Street and seeing, you know, Otis Redding, Temptations, Smokey Robinson, yeah. Sam and Dave, all those guys. So, you know, Daryl was doing kind of the same thing. Yeah. So we kind of had a lot in common there when we got together. Um, I just... Um, I wrote my first song for the masters record in 67 yeah. and I thought, you know, I'll just keep trying it. You know I mean? I love to write. I'm, you know, I'm, I, writing has always come easy to me in terms of just writing in general. Yeah. So I said, well, I'll just keep, keep trying. And, uh, when Daryl and I got together, really, we didn't really, we knew each other in 68 and 69 
And, but we just hung out. We didn't play. And then in 70 is when we actually started getting together. As far as you guys meeting for the first time, I don't, you've got to tell me whether this story, I mean, cause you said you guys met cause you knew each other's mu- or knew of each other from your, each other's music. But I read that you guys were at like a band yeah. competition and there was some crazy scene that happened and you guys were escaping. That's a little bit of a myth. It's not okay. quite right. Um, <laughs> That's why I wanted to go actually, direct to what the happened source. Was, when Daryl's record was out and my record was out, yeah. the Masters and the Temptones, yeah. when those records were being played on Philadelphia radio at the same time, we got invited to go to a, a, what they called a record hop, which was a teenage dance right, right. Yeah. Um, in West Philly in a really bad neighborhood. Uh, and uh, so we went independently with our individual groups and we were back in the backstage area. It was, wasn't really, it was like a closet in the hallway. Um, it was, uh, it was Daryl's group, my group, uh, a group called the five stair steps, which had a song called Ooh, baby, baby. Yep, yep. Um, and a guy named Howard Tate who had a song called look at granny run, run. Okay. And, uh, we were the, we were supposed to go on and, and lip sync our songs yeah. and a gang fight broke out and everybody left. We all yeah. left and we went down to the street to the sidewalk and, um, that's kind of how we met. We were like, Hey man, I heard your record on the radio. Yeah. Yeah. That. Right, you know, right. and Philly is so small, you know, the scene was so small that we kept running into each other. And then, uh, we actually started sharing apartments. You know, we were hippies. We lived in the, in, in the little hippie neighborhoods, you know, yeah. and, and we lived, you know, only a few blocks from each other, sharing apartments in different places. And, um, then, uh, in 1970, both of us were kind of frustrated with what we were both doing in, individually. And we just said, you know, man, let's just, you know, you play a song, I'll play along with you, you know, I'll play one, you play along with me. And right, right. I mean, it was as casual as that. We had no band and we played some art galleries and coffee houses and things like that and got a little bit of a reputation in Philly. Uh, and then, you know, slowly, eventually we hired a drummer and a bass player. Do you remember the first song you guys wrote together? Yeah, I do. I can't remember what it was called, yeah. but one thing I do know, it was awful. Um, <laughs> we, 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 we wrote a song together in right 68 Yeah, and we were both going to Temple university and we had no way to record it, yeah. but the Temple university radio station had a tape recorder. Okay. So we went to the radio station after hours and we um, recorded the song. And when we listened back to it, it sounded so bad that we were like, this will never work. We'll just hang out. Forget yeah. this. Yeah. And yeah. And it really wasn't until, um, well, it's kind of a long story, but it's, it's funny. Um, I went to Europe in the, in the spring of 70 after I graduated from college and I had a backpack and a guitar and a few hundred bucks. Yeah. And I went uh, and I bummed around uh, Europe uh, till, till September. So for about four months. And while I was away, I, I let um, Daryl's sister and her boyfriend use my apartment and they were supposed to pay the rent. And when I got back in September, I literally showed up with my backpack, guitar, and hardly any money. And um, there was a padlock on the door <laughs> because they hadn't paid the rent. And uh, so I literally, I walked a few blocks down to where Daryl was living. And I knocked on his door, man. I said, hey, hey, dude, you, your sister kind of screwed me out of my apartment. Yeah. Um, what do we do? And he's like, oh, man, don't worry about it. Why don't you just go move in upstairs and uh, you can sleep on the couch. Wow. And uh, so that's what I did. And that's where his piano was. Okay. Um, it was like a pull out couch. And so he'd come up to play piano and I'd be there with a guitar and we yeah. started doing stuff. Right. Right. And then as far as getting your first deal, were you guys kind of playing around Philly and, and performing a lot? Like how did that come about? No, uh, it was a, it's a long convoluted story as yeah. well. We, um, 
we were signed to a guy. Um, the the Schubert Theater building on Broad Street was uh, was where the it was like the it was Philly's version of the Brill Building. Yeah. So there was a guy uh, who had a, an office on the fourth floor, and he had, had some hits with Danny and the Juniors and Chubby Checker and people like that. Yeah. Uh, Gamble and Huff had just opened their offices on the seventh floor. Yeah. And so Daryl and I were signed as uh, staff songwriters along with a couple other young kids. Yeah. Uh, I got $25 a week. Yeah. And um, we went in every day and started writing songs. And then we'd write a song and then the guy who we were working for would put his name on it. Oh, and, yeah, uh, okay. you know, it, it was, it was typical, typical old school music business stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, there, there came a time when he, he had a catalog of, of publishing songs and he wanted to sell them. So in order to sell them, he, he, um, he kind of touted us as the new up and coming songwriters right. because all his stuff was old. It was old rock and roll from the Campio Parkway era. And so he took us to New York to play for chapel music. And, um, we auditioned at Chapel. We did some uh, did some showcases in New York City, and everyone always loved us, but we never got a deal. So we'd come back to Philly, and we'd go, "Hey, man, what happened? They seem to really like us." He'd yeah. go, "Nah, nah, they passed." But what we didn't realize was behind our backs, he was like asking for all this money and right. you know and all this stuff, and he was not going to let, let us sign to any label. Yeah. He was going to sign for us, and then we were going to have to sign to him. You know, all this stuff, music business stuff that we, did, we weren't aware of. Right, right. So it took us a while to figure it all out, but once we did, we, um, we got really pissed, and, and we just said, okay, forget this shit. So we, we scrambled uh, some money together, and we took a flight to LA. I had never been to Los Angeles wow. um, and Daryl had never been. And we went there and uh, we, we had a contact of a guy from Chapel Music. He picked us up at the airport, let us sleep at his house. And I mean, we were real hippies. I mean, we, you know, we, we didn't have anything going on. Yeah. Um, and we played a couple weird shows in the LA area. Just me and Daryl, acoustic guitar and an electric piano. And, um, Finally, he said, you know, there's this guy I think you should meet. And he took us to this little bungalow off Santa Monica Boulevard, right? Not far from the Troubadour. And it was owned by this guy. He was an art, he was an art collector and, and personal friends with Ahmed Erdogan from Atlantic Records. And we went to his house. We brought our electric piano and acoustic guitar. And we set up in his garden in the backyard. He had this little tiny garden, this little, you know, those little Hollywood uh, bungalows that are oh, near yeah. Santa Monica Boulevard in that Absolutely. area. Yeah. So we set up in the, in the garden and, you know, we talked and had some drinks or whatever. And then we, he said, well, play me some songs. So we start playing our, you know, we went through our dog and pony show, right? Yeah, we played yeah. our little songs. And he's, so I remember after this couple songs, he started laughing. Yeah. He started going, are you guys for real? And we're like, well, yeah, I guess. I mean, I don't know. What's, what's wrong? He goes, <laughs> you guys are amazing. He goes, what's going on? I said, I don't know. Every time we play for someone, they think they say they like us, but nobody ever wants to get involved with us. And he goes, I do. And he goes, wow. I'm calling Amit. Yeah. Wow. And it was crazy. And we were like, we thought he was joking. Yeah, yeah. And we were like, okay. And he says, you guys go back to New York and you go to Atlantic Records. Yeah. And I'll, I'll make the introduction. So we did. Um, and we wow. went back to Atlantic and we walked into a room with, uh, Gary Greenberg, who was the president at the time, yeah. a guy named Mark Meyerson, who's head of A&R and, uh, Arif Martin, the famous yeah, producer. Of course, yeah. Great producer, right? Yeah. 
And uh, Daryl, I know Daryl wasn't feeling well. I think the piano was a little out of tune. Um, and we did our, our little thing with our five or six songs, whatever yeah. we had. And um, at the end, Arif stood up and he went, I will produce them. And that was it. <laughs> nice. And we were wow. like, okay. And that's how we got with Arif and signed to Atlantic. And, yeah. Yeah. And how was working with Arif? Was it, I mean, uh, uh, what a legend. Was, we couldn't, I mean, we were blessed to be put into a, a mentorship, honestly, with a, one of the great producers of all time. Yeah. And honestly, I think um, everything, I think, you know, we made two albums with him, but really the Abandoned Luncheonette album is where we hit our stride with him. Yeah. And I think everything about record production, honestly, I learned through working with him. Right. Um, in, in terms of how to, how to conduct a session, how to handle the musicians, you know, whether they be studio musicians. You know, he, he was amazing because he let us, you know, we were like tw- in our 20s, man. We were all over the map. We were like, yeah, let's do this. Let's try this. Yeah. Let, you know, let's put a harpsichord on it, you know. Yeah. And he would let us kind of do whatever we wanted to a certain point. And then he would, you know, he had this heavy Turkish accent. And he would always, he would always say, now I put on my producer's cap, <laughs> which meant it was time for Love. us to listen to him, right? right and shut right, up, right. you know. But he, he seldom did that. And yeah. he surrounded us with, you know, the greatest players in New York, you know, Bernard Purdy on drums, oh, yeah. Richard T and, and Yuma Kraken and uh, Dave Spinoza, guitar players. Um, we had uh, Pancho Morales uh, playing key uh, percussion. Yeah. I mean, you know, we even had um, uh, Joe Farrell playing sax. Right, right. I mean, that's Joe Farrell, the great jazz saxophone player playing on She's Gone. Right, right. Um, so, you know, you know, he put us in this room that, with players that could take our songs and just elevate them, you right. know? And then of course he wrote the string arrangements, which are off the, you know, right. off the charts. Yeah. No bad pun, but, yeah. they, but seriously on yeah. the charts. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, because they were so brilliant. Yeah. But honestly, you know, even today when I go into Nashville and I put a session together with players, I kind of run it like, uh, like he ran the sessions. Uh, I, I hire the best people I can find and I let them do their thing, but I just, kind of keep an eye on the ball in terms of the direction. Right. Right. But I don't really dictate anything. I just, because I hire the, the people for the reason I'm, that, of what they do as opposed to, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, yeah. and, and so that's it. I think a lot of that, you know, producing is an interesting art because you don't want to, you want to be involved, but you got to let the artists do their thing and you got to leave some room. And like you said, yeah. choosing the right people to be in the room and creating the vibe is, is a right. lot of it. And all those things. Yeah. And what about song selection? Was he pretty involved? Like, did he say, okay, play me all your songs. And then he would, he would, did he, was he involved with arranging the songs too? The first album was not much like that because it was really just a collection of songs that Daryl had some, I had some, a lot of them we didn't even write together. Right. Um, we, we just had to get it out of our system. Yeah. And, you know, he just, uh, and it was very folky and acoustic and there was hardly any instrumentation, not a lot of rhythm section stuff, you know, but Arif would always come up with some really cool, amazing accompaniment, whether it's like one cello and an oboe or something, you know. Yeah. Uh, but on the Abandoned Luncheonette album, it was much more rhythm section driven. Right. And on that record, yeah, we we did. We played him a bunch of stuff. I don't, he only rejected a couple things. Um I remember I had one song that I thought was pretty good. I played it for him. He went, he went, sounds like three little fishes. <laughs> <laughs> and so that one was out that I got thrown into shit camp. Did you guys kind of have a sense for what was going to be a hit 
You know what I mean? Did you guys, you know, write, you know, whether it's She's Gone or any of the songs, like, was it like, okay, when the chorus comes, you're like, oh, man. Did you get that feeling on certain songs? It was pretty obvious that She's Gone was the standout track on that record. Right. They, you know, and especially once we once we cut the track, the rhythm track was just kicking ass because, yeah. you know, Bernard Purdy's groove was just so on the money. I mean, Deep it pockets, was like, yeah. I, I don't think I ever played with a drummer to that point where all we had to do was play him a little bit of the song and then he would count it off. And wherever yeah. he counted it, was exactly where it should be. Yeah, yeah. There was not even a question about it. Yeah. And it was like uh, floating on a cloud. You know, I mean, you've played with drummers yeah. who once, you know, the groove is so solid yeah. and they, they are in such command of the groove yeah. that all you got to do is do your thing over it. You know what yeah. I mean? Oh, you know what I'm best. talking about. That's the best. Right? Yeah. Exactly. So that was the situation. And once we cut that track and, and we sang it and, and we put that, you know, four half step modulation in it. So it goes, you know, yep. from the key of E to the key of C, yeah. um, you know, it's like, uh, all, you know, it just had this grandiosity to it. Yeah. And then of course, when he put his string arrangement on it, it was over, you know, yeah. and yeah. everyone knew that was the track. Yeah. Although, you know, some of the other ones were pretty cool too. You know, when the morning comes and, yeah. you know, um, just, uh, you know, there were some cool tracks. When the that. morning comes is a great track. We were listening to it last night, by the way, because that's my 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 mother in law's favorite song. She was she was bumping that in the house last night. <laughs> by the way, that's check this out. Yeah, we were experimenting with the early days of analog synthesizers. Yeah, back yeah. back then. Yeah, we had a we had a, we had an ARP twenty six hundred, right? Oh yeah, I love the and I love the ARP. This guy Chris Bond, who was our guitar player yeah. uh, in those days went on to become our producer in the seventies. He figured out a way of, of running a mic line into the ARP 2600. And that's Joe Farrell playing a, um, a clarinet. Oh, crazy. Through the ARP 2600. And oh. while he was playing, uh, Chris was moving the analog, oh, you know, yeah. mod modulating, you know, modulating it. Yeah. And that's that weird, you know, so that's actually oh, wow. Joe Farrell playing a clarinet through a synthesizer. Crazy. Did you guys have uh, have fun experimenting? Because, you know, at those times, the art of recording was just changing so drastically as you guys were creating, right? I mean, in the 70s, multi-track recording was getting expanding. The tape machines were expanding. All the technology was expanding. Was that a huge part of your process, like finding new sounds and... Yeah, we were always searching. I mean, in fact, we had the first commercial Mellotron wow. that was sold, you know, outside of uh, what Big Floyd was using. Right. Um, when they actually made the kind that you could buy, yeah. uh, we ordered the very first one and we we tried to tour with it. It was a nightmare. Changing out the tapes. and Oh, the tapes would yeah. fall into the bottom and they would stop <laughs> working. And I mean, we had to rebuild it literally every show. Yeah, yeah. We had to put a heat sink in it because the motors stopped working. It was stupid but anyway no we constantly were probing uh and doing stuff and i, I think you know i'm, I'm not bragging but i i think it's something uh, that a lot of people don't give us enough credit for that yeah. we were doing things you know in these early 70s using as, as i said hybrid of synthes synthesizers and organic instruments uh we were doing that a lot i mean the the abandoned luncheonette album was engineered by gene paul who was yeah. uh, les paul's son yeah we mixed it on the original board that um uh what's his name tom dowd built oh yeah yeah it, it had the rotary pots yeah the bakelite pots like world war ii yeah, yeah you know it yeah. didn't have faders it had pots yeah, yeah. yeah i mean we mixed those albums on that 
that Amazing. Board. Everyone's got their different job. Oh, yeah. Like, okay, yeah, you yeah. got to turn this up in the bridge yeah. and you got to turn this down. Oh, yeah. The people outro. crossing their arms going like <laughs> this. You know? Uh, yeah. I mean, the kids out there who are listening to this won't have any clue what we're talking yeah, about. Yeah. 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 Well, now you just talk into Ableton and say, fade out the, fade this <laughs> out. Um, right. Yeah. Tom Dowd, man. He's been like a topic throughout this, this show because so many people were affected by him and worked with him and he was just totally I mean he is a hero to us but I feel like the public doesn't know how much he contributed to there's a great documentary about yes him. I've seen that actually it's really yeah. worth watching yeah we'll be right back after a quick message from our sponsors Once you guys had the hit record going back out on tour, was it was it was it a gradual climb to playing these massive shows or was it kind of like, OK, here we are? Well, the 70s were kind of a, a time of, of, of searching, you yeah. know, for a sound. You know, if you think about it, we did Whole Oats, Band Luncheonette, and then we wanted to do something totally different because we were absorbing living in New York. And we went with Todd Rundgren and did War Babies. Right, right. So so we had these folky thing, kind of acoustic R&B, and then we had a total off-the-wall experimental prog rock thing with Todd. Yeah, yeah. Um, and none of it was right, but the the elements of all three of those albums kind of came together on the Silver album that we did in right. L.A. with with Chris Bond. Right. And uh, that's where we had Sarah Smile. Right. And, you know, we had Lee Sklar playing bass, and oh, yeah. we had Ed Green and Jim Gordon, and we had uh, Jeff Picaro, um you know, we had unbelievable LA session players. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the, and we made, you know, I think it was the first time we started to coalesce a sound. Yeah. And yeah. from there, we just kept working on it and refining it through the 70s. Right. And, you know, yeah. with Sarah Smiles and Rich Girl, and, and then she's gone being re released, becoming hit, we right. had, uh, we did, we moved into the big venues pretty quickly. Right. And we were floundering because we, we didn't have a lot of experience live. Yeah. in the big venues you know we we're used to playing clubs and small theaters um and so that's that's what the 70s were about really trying different band configurations touring tr trying to write better and then 70s we had a late 70s we had a little dip and then it led us to the realization that we needed to produce ourselves yeah and that's yeah. when the 80s hit and that's when we had all our commercial success right right and uh i mean one of the things i got to say about the production too on the records whether it's you guys or who you who you obviously you absorbed a lot from the guys you worked with but you always your your records stand up today obviously people play those records all the time whereas a lot of people in those eras it's hard to listen to because that maybe they were going too far with these sounds and too far with the sounds of the time um and i think you guys are so tasteful um in your production which is why the staying power and um you know not just the songs but the production as well sounds like you got a, you guys kind of a lot rubbed off from a reef uh as far as sure. the taste and all that. But in the eighties, um, were you guys, so you guys were producing together or is the production kind of laying on your shoulders more so? No, both of us. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I probably handled a little bit more of the technical side than Daryl did. Um, yeah. but no, we, we did it, but we were always as, as to, to take your point in terms of the sound of the records, we were always very conscientious of 
the engineers we used. We right. always picked great engineers. And when Chris Bond, who also was on the Abandoned Lunch Now album, experiencing the same thing with us and Arif Martin, yeah. when he moved to LA and became a producer, he really knew the, the lay of the land, you know? I mean, in the mid seventies, LA was the place to record. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it was, the, they were making great records out there. Yeah. Um, and so he knew the best engineers, he knew the best studios, and he knew all the great studio musicians. So because we still didn't have a band that we felt, a road band that we felt comfortable being in the studio with, we still relied on studio musicians all through the 70s. Yeah. So, and that was, you know, it was really a function of making sure we had great engineering and solid, you know, solid production. And, it, you know, it was just using common musical sense. And once we developed that, the 80s band, you know, with G.E. Smith and oh, T-Bone yeah. and Charlie Deshant and Mickey Curry, yeah. When we got that band and started touring with them, we realized now we have a band we can go into the studio with. Right. Now yeah. we can, now it all came together. That was the thing that all made it go like this. Right, but right. We're producing ourselves with our road band in the studio. Right. And it was all like that. Yeah. And do you think that, I mean, it sounds like really that the climb to the massiveness that happened in the 80s, you guys had been together long enough that do you think that helped the foundation because a lot of people that get that massive fall apart and burn <laughs> do you attribute i mean obviously i think you guys were very level-headed and, and and it sounds like your friendship was strong but is there any other reasons why you can attract or other things that you can attribute to the the staying success and the not burning out we had the whole decade of the 70s to yeah. make mistakes try lots of things. And fortunately for us, we had labels that actually stuck with us even when we were successful and not right. successful, right. which of course in this day and age, that never happens anymore. Right. Um, it gave us the ability to make creative mistakes. And I think Daryl and I are both, uh, you know, we both, all we care about is music. It's yeah. really all we ever cared about. Yeah. And we, you know, we wanted to make great music and it wasn't about being famous. It wasn't about making money. We thought if we do, if we write great songs and we make great records, all that stuff will happen. Right. It was, you know, rather than use fame and success and uh, money as a goal, make that a, you know, we, we think of that as a, a byproduct of hard work, professionalism, talent, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. But, I mean, that was our mantra, you know, I don't think we, we thought about it or talked about it much, but yeah. that's where we were coming from. And, yeah. you know, and that, you know, don't forget we were in our thirties in the eighties. Yeah. Yeah. We weren't kids anymore. Right. So, you know, it's not like the, the pop bands of today, you know, these American Idol kids who get, you know, put out there to, to the ma you know, millions and millions of people and they're totally not prepared for anything that might happen. To them. Right, right. We had plenty of time to, to, you know, tour and, you know, and record. I mean, we had, you know, we had uh, 10 albums under our belt yeah, before yeah. the 80s hit. Right, right. Did you, any, any like holy crap moments that you can think of that, that, you know, whether it's working with one of your absolute idols or moments where you kind of looked at each other or thought like, you know, holy shit, we've done this. One thing I'll, I'll I always remember is when my band broke up, two of the guys got drafted to Vietnam. Uh, I joined Daryl's band as a backup guitar player because it was predominantly a, a vocal group. Uh, and um, that band broke, that group broke up and Daryl and I were kind of hanging out. So, um, one of the first things I did with him was we went to New York with his, his group and me as a backup guitar player. Yeah. And we played a showcase in the village at the gaslight, I think. Okay. 
Um, and uh, after the show, Daryl kind of sprung a surprise on me. He was at, he was friends with the Temptations because they they had played some shows together, and Temptations kind of took them under this wing. So he, he kind of was trying to, he was being the big guy, you know, the big dude. And he was saying, hey, man, I got a surprise for you. We're going to the Apollo to see the Temptations. And I was wow. like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Little did I know we were going backstage. Yeah. So we get to the Apollo and we literally go to the backstage into the Apollo, into the Temptations dressing room. Yeah. The original lineup with Eddie yeah. Kendrick, David Ruffin, the whole thing. Yeah. And I'm like, of course, I'm, I'm blown away. You know, I'm like thinking, okay. This guy, Daryl Hall's got some shit going on here, you know? <laughs> uh, so we go and, and, uh, you know, after doing all that, we go and sit in the, fr- they took us to the front row. We sat in the front row of the Apollo and the temptations, you know, did their show. And I, yeah. I had seen them many times and I was a huge fan. Yeah. So, um, flash forward now to the eighties, uh, 85 or 86. I can't remember. Um, the Apollo was closed for renovation and when they wanted to reopen, they wanted to do something special. And of course, we were really big at the time. Yeah. And uh, the NAACP wanted to kind of send a message and, you know, have more of an inter- integrated kind of opening. Yeah. So they wanted us to open the Apollo. Yeah. With a new renovation. Yeah. So we said, okay, this is a chance in a lifetime, right? Yeah. So we put together, you know, we had the great rhythm section, but we put together a full horn section. Yeah. We had an extra keyboard. And we got Eddie Kendrick and David Ruffin. Eddie wow. was playing. Eddie was playing in Holiday Inns in Alabama. Wow, really? Yeah, and, and David was doing nothing. He was right. in kind of in bad shape, to be yeah. honest with you. Um, so we got them. We found them. We asked them if they would reprise the the Temptations hits, the medley. Yeah. Um, and we we then we went further. You know, we went further and said, Hey, look, will you wear the black tuxes and yeah, yeah. go the whole way, right? Yeah, right? Yeah. And they were into it. So we brought them to New York and we did the whole thing with the dance steps and the whole thing. Man. And we did, you know, the way you do the things you do, my yeah. girl ain't too proud to beg. You know, we did, we, we did a medley, a temptation yeah. of metal. And it was, it was like, it was like tripping yeah. because <laughs> I'm now on the stage with yeah. my two childhood heroes yeah. looking at the front row where I sat yeah. watching them. Crazy. Seriously, it was psychedelic, man. I, yeah. I mean that in the yeah. truest sense of the word. Yeah. Um, it was like seeing your life pass before you. Yeah. In fact, I actually felt like I was above me looking down on what was happening. It was wow. really amazing. Wow. So, you know, that was a full circle moment. Really, that was something. And you guys did tour that at some point, right? Didn't you bring them on, on some other well, shows? Well, no, we didn't tour with it. But yeah. when we got asked to do Live Aid in Philly. Oh, okay, so it was Live Aid. Then. We, yeah, I know yeah, that we got to, we were time. We yeah. were headlining Live Aid. We, yeah. were, we were the final act in Live right, Aid. Right. Um, Mick Jagger had a solo album out at the time. Yeah. And uh, G.E. Smith, our, our guitar player, played on it. Okay. And so Mick didn't have a band. So he asked GE if we would back him right. uh, in, in, in his set. So what they did was they we came on and did our Hall & Oates set. Yeah. Then we brought Eddie and David out to reprise the Temptations medley. Oof. Then Mick came out and brought Tina Turner out, and we closed the show with, with, that, with that. So that wow. was we were on stage for like two hours. Right, right. It's unbelievable. And you know that was the that was the biggest con- rock concert in the history of Ever. the world. Yeah, no, I remember watching the whole thing, and you know, as a kid, mm-hmm. that is amazing. But yeah, to be on stage with your heroes like that, and the Apollo—I mean, it's just a magic 
place. And then you guys have also done a lot of solo work um, while coming back and forth, you know, in, you know, you got with hollow notes and you're doing your solo stuff. Um, was there a moment in time where you kind of said, okay, let's take a break and, and concentrate because, and fulfill some of the other things that, that I want to do, you know, how did that evolve into, and cause it seems like you guys found a rhythm to do your own thing, come back together, um, which isn't always easy. Correct. It's not. We always saw ourselves as two individuals who work together. And yeah. that kind of gives us the, uh, the the license to go off and do. Daryl was making solo albums in the 70s. Right. He made an album with Robert Fripp. Yeah. Um, you know, it, we actually talked about it. We said, you know, if we're going to do other things, we shouldn't do anything that sounds like what we do together. It should be yeah. totally different. Yeah. And so, you know, kind of keeping that in mind, he did a lot of progressive stuff like that. I never really did anything on my own. Um, I produced some stuff. I, I wrote Electric Blue with Ice House, you know, and I did some productions in Canada with a band called uh, Parachute Club. And uh, But honestly, for me, the 90s were a time of kind of rebuilding my actual real life. Right. You know, I didn't do much music. Um, I got remarried, had a kid, built a house, moved to Colorado. Yeah. Uh, it was just different. It was not really a time. It was kind of like a chance to regroup in a sense from the 80s. But when I, uh, I started, I worked with a guy named Jerry Lynn Williams, an amazing singer songwriter from Oklahoma. And he had a lot of ties to Nashville. So when I was working with him, um, in the course of the various people I met, I said, you got to come to Nashville. You got to come to Nashville. So in the late nineties, I started going there to write. Right. And, you know, it wasn't successful, but I, I liked it. You know, I liked the vibe. I liked the great players. And I started finding these Americana and Roots players who kind of had the same early influences that I had, like yeah. of the Roots music before I met Daryl. Right. And I began to be part of that Americana community. And uh, little by little, I tapped into those early influences, realized that was something I could use to go forward, you know. Yeah. And that's how my solo, my series of solo albums really has, uh, that's the, 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 you know, that's kind of the identity behind it. The Arkansas record I've been listening to and uh, read a little bit about. And so you had, you was it your uncle is from, from Fayetteville? Right. And yep. so you had an experience there that kind of, I mean, from, from what I read was like kind of an inspired moment that at least that where that song came out and you, you initially were going to do a tribute or it is somewhat a tribute to Mississippi John Hurt. Is that correct? And then the, the whole, the scope shifted, right? Yeah. I mean, I didn't even know I was going to make that record. To oh, okay. be honest with you, I was going to, I was going to cut a couple Mississippi John Hurt tracks with just, you know, I own Mississippi John Hurt's guitar. Right. I want to ask you about that played. too. And he played at Newport. Yeah. I was going to go in there, play, you know, a couple songs, maybe do an EP, give it away, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, and it was like, okay, yeah, so I can do it. So what? There's a lot of people who can do that. Yeah. Um, but I didn't want to abandon the song. So what happened was I said, I wonder what it would sound like if I played these same songs with a band. In other words, if I just played the exact same thing I'm doing, the traditional, authentic Mississippi John Hurt style, finger yeah. style, but I surrounded it with a band. But I said, no, I don't want to just do a blues band like everyone, you know, a harp and a slide guitar and, you know, a B3. I, I said, I want to do something weird. So I got a pedal steel player, this guy, Russ Paul, who's like a, a genius. Very, But he's also not traditional country. Yeah, he can yeah. do the very unique stuff. Cool. And I found this incredible young cellist um, who now plays with Casey Musgraves, this guy named Nat Smith. 
And I, I saw him play one time at uh, Music City Roots. And I went up to him after the show. I said, dude, come over to the house, man. Let's just play. Yeah. And he blew me, blew me away. Wow. So I wanted to put the cello with the pedal steel. Yeah. And then I asked Sam to play, Sam Bush. Yeah. Once I had Sam and I said, okay, now I got Guthrie Trap, who's a monster lead guitar player, uh, Steve Mackey on bass and Josh Day on drums. And I put that together and I didn't know what was going to happen. I said, yeah. let's just try some stuff. So we recorded Stack of Lee, which is a classic Mississippi John Hurt uh, version of Staggerly. And uh, we cut the track, you know, and after we cut the track, we all came into the, the control room and my engineers turned to me and said, man, he goes, we listened to it and we were like, wow, pretty cool. Yeah. And my engineer said, man, I don't know what this is, but just keep doing it. Yeah, Cause yeah, it's yeah. cool. And that's what we did. Right. So once we exhausted the Mississippi John Hurt stuff, it was so good. I said, man, we got something else has to happen. Yeah, yeah. And I said, well, I wonder what Mississippi John Hurt was listening to in 1929 when he was recording on OK Records. Right. So I started looking at jukebox playlists. I started looking at, and then I said, well, you know what? What, what was the, what's the earliest pop record? Yeah. And I found the song Anytime uh, written by this guy named Hap Lawson. And it, I, I found out that it sold a million copies in 1923. And I was blown away. I, Cause here I am, I'm a pop, you know, I'm a pop songwriter. Yeah. I had no idea what the for early pop records were. Right, right. And I said, well, I said, what's a pop record? Well, if you can hear it on the radio and buy it on a record, it's a pop record. Right, right. So that's what I did. And so little by little, it became this snapshot of these early days of American popular music. Did, was that actually same unit what you took on the road? Yeah. I took the exact same band on the road at first, the full compliment but of yeah. course, Sam Bush has his own band and tours all the time. Yeah. So Sam wasn't always available. Right. Uh, Nat Smith got a job with Casey Musgrave. So yeah. <laughs> what can I say about yeah. that? You yeah. know, obviously he took it. So really, a lot of the shows we did was the core rhythm section of Guthrie, Trap, Steve Mackey, Josh Day, me, and Russ Paul on pedal steel. Oh, wow. Yeah. And we played a, a ton of shows. Yeah. And we kept getting tighter and better and adding different songs to the set. And um, then whenever Sam was available, we'd you know, grab him. And whenever Nat was off the road with Casey Musgrave, we'd grab him. Yeah. So um, really, it, it, we, we ended up January of this year, and I was getting ready, supposedly, to do a big, giant Hall & Oates tour. Yeah. And I thought, well, I'm not going to be playing with these guys in 2020. Yeah. So um, I went to the Station Inn. You know the Station Inn and down in the Gulch in Nashville. And I said, come on, let's go to the Station Inn. Let's have a fun night, and let's just play, and we'll record everything. Yeah. We'll record all this, everything we got. Yeah. Cause I really wanted to capture this band while yeah. it was at its peak, you know? Um, and that's what we did. Little did I know that the whole notes tour would get canceled. Right. And then I said, Whoa, I am so freaking lucky. I got this amazing recording. Yeah. And so about two months ago, I started saying, you know what? I'm going to put this out. Yeah. And that's how, that's the live album that's out of that right now. Did you mix the record or are you involved? Yeah. You, you, you have, do you have a studio that you, well, I have a studio that I use. It's, a, it's a place called Addiction Sound. It's right, a fantastic right. studio. In fact, I'm yeah. go, right after we finish talking, I'm okay. going over there. Oh, cool, um, cool. I love it. And I go, it's only a couple miles from my house. Oh, beautiful. I mean, I guess we'll see when this is all over again, but are you hoping to get the band back back out on the road at some point? And I, you know, I play live whenever I could, you know, just like you yeah. probably. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you want to play and we all want to play. Uh, right now, Daryl and I booked a tour for August of 2021, right. 2021. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in the meantime, if the world opens up a little bit, the guys are itching to play. I mean, I'm sure I'll grab them and say, hey, 
let's go play somewhere, right, you know? Right. In the meantime, I might do a couple acoustic type, you know, singer songwriter type things. And what about producing? Are you still, you still have an itch to produce records? Well, I just did. I actually produced, um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the executive producer of a soundtrack of a new movie. Uh, it's oh, called cool. Gringa. A good friend of mine directed it and he asked me to come up with some songs and I did. And I came up with, um, <laughs> came up with so many songs. He made me the executive producer. Wow. Um, it's, it's cool. It's cool. You can check it out. It's called gringa movie.com. Okay, it's a cool. story of this young girl in Southern California. He, he, she goes to Mexico to try to find her father. Oh, cool. And, um, it's a, it's great. I did a, I did a, um, do you know a Mexican, uh, gal singer named Jemina Sariana? No, no. She's really well known. She's a, in, in Mexico and yeah. she's toured in the U S as well. Uh, I met her through Donovan Frankenreiter. Oh yeah. I know Donovan. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, she opened for him and I, jammed with those guys and oh, cool. um so i i got a hold of her because i wrote this one song and and it has a lot of spanish content and so she uh did more spanish lyrics and we did it in spanish and i got to sing oh, in spanish cool. with her which oh, is wow. really cool uh so it's got a it's an eclectic uh mix of songs um and the movie is really really cool nice nice before we go i did want to ask you a little bit more about the mississippi john hart connection and how the guitar got into your hands okay what happened was when John Hurt died, the guitar was given to my guitar teacher, Jerry Ricks, right. who is on that yeah. poster right up there. Yeah. Um, Jerry was my guitar teacher and he also played on the first two Hall and Oates albums. With right. me. Uh, when I went to New York to do the Hall and Oates albums, um, he said, do you want me to bring the John Hurt guitar for you to play? And I said, yeah, absolutely. So I'm actually playing the John Hurt guitar on the first two Hall and Oates albums. Yeah. After those albums, uh, the guitar, Jerry owned the guitar, and uh, he went to Denver, Colorado. He worked out there for a while playing and teaching guitar, and I think he needed money. Uh, he sold it to someone in Denver, right? and he disappeared and went to Europe, and he never came back. He unfortunately passed away about 15 years ago in right. Europe. Um, so the guitar remained in a collection in Denver for all this time. Uh, the guy passed away, and um, his daughter was the, I guess the uh, executor to the estate. Yeah. What was needed to sell his guitar collection. So she put it in the hands of, of, uh, of a guy at the Denver folklore center and he advertised it on YouTube. My friend found it, told me, Hey John, somebody's got the Mississippi John Hurt guitar. You've yeah. got it. So I called him up. Um, and I said, what's it going to take? Yeah. He said, well, he said, make an offer. Yeah. And I said, look, I don't, you know, this is a very, it's a very sensitive issue. It's, you know, the, the, the woman's father, you know, father died. And, you know, I don't know. I don't want to like, you know, be weird, you know. Yeah, yeah. And he told me what to offer. And I said, okay, I'll do it. And yeah. I offered, he said, this, I think it's fair. And I said, okay. And I offered it to her. And she said, yes. And I told wow. her, I said, you know, I played this guitar. And she yeah. was like, well, you know, you need to have it. Yeah, and I said, absolutely. okay, I do need to have it. Wow. Um, and it had sat in a basement in Colorado for what, 25, 30 years. So it was dried out, um, yeah. needed a neck reset. Do you know what year it was built? It was a, it's a 63 F30. 63, okay. Wow. F30, yeah. That's some serious mojo. Yeah, serious mojo. It's really funny, too, because the guy who had it at the Denver Folklore Center, when I picked up the guitar, the first thing I did was play Creole Bell, which oh, is, yeah. you know, like classic Mississippi John Hurt, right? And he said to me, he said, every person, Who's ever picked up that guitar played Creole? Oh, really? On that. <laughs> yeah. It just speaks it. 
Um, just wanted to. And you are you're you're a collector, right? You have some some guitars. You know, I got I got a couple cool ones. I'm not I'm not a collector of guitars I don't play. Right, you want to play them? To me, they're all working guitars. And you is it a '57 Tele that you have that '58 Strat? Oh, 58 strap. But what's the telly? Because when we were down, we did the show together in Florida. You had a, a really special yeah. Telecaster. But I can't remember what you Oh, yeah. It's, that's a, that's a, that was a 61. I actually oh, sold that. Oh, you um, sold it. Yeah, it had a, it had a P90 and, and a Bigsby, I think. Yes, yes. It I was think cream, that's cream it. color. Cream I do color. remember. Or maybe you maybe. No, you did no, bring... no, 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 man. No, no. In Okeechobee, yeah. I had the 58 Strat. Oh, it was 58 Strat because there's a story behind that. <laughs> yeah, that was the one that, what's his name? Skrillex. Skrillex. So it was, the, that's right. It was the 58 Strat. Now, because I, I just wanted it because we never really discussed this. Dude, I love that story. I tell that story all the time. Really? Because I got my, I have a version of it that I'm You curious. tell me your version. Well, because you and I, you and I, I don't know if we ever actually spoke about it, but I was on one side of the stage. You're on the other side. You were on, the, oh, you were on my left. You yeah. were on my left. I was on the right. Yeah. And for those that don't know, so John, John and I, got to put this really cool show together for Ogachopi Festival and we had Zigaboo from the Meters, we had George Porter from the Meters, we had Prez Hall, we had yeah. Wim Butler from Arcade Fire, Miguel, uh Mac Miller, rest in peace. We had Skrillex, yep. uh Mumford and Sons. It was a crazy, <laughs> crazy night. And we were like just going insane trying to slot everybody in and figure out the songs right. and the songs were changing and so Skrillex who who is an incredible artist but not known for his guitar work and uh, he, <laughs> I remember one of the funny things is I love George Porter George Porter kept calling him Skillets by mistake and he was <laughs> yeah, he was like he was like is Skillets playing guitar because I don't understand what's going on because he, he was holding the guitar and I'm like yeah you know it's cool he's playing some guitar he's doing some scratching and we're going to figure it out and then when he gets on stage for the actual show there's a luckily it was a backline guitar which means it's a rented guitar and john and i are speaking before the show he's like i think i'm gonna bring the strat out you know and i'm like oh great because he's like i don't you know we, we were like careful about bringing our best instruments on stage but yeah so he brings it out it's on a stand stage right for as far as i remember skrillex comes out grabs luckily first grabs the backline guitar and he's banging away on it, banging away on it. And then he starts, it breaks a string. And then he and Wynn Butler decide to start ripping the strings out and throwing the guitar back and forth. And it's on the floor and he's grabbing it. And I remember you, I remember catching, uh, you and I looking at each other and he's like, oh, well that guitar is done. And he starts beelining for the 58 Strat. And I remember thinking in my head, we're in, we're in front of 20,000 people or something. I'm like, if I got to go down, I'll go down for the Strat. I was like, if I need to like jump in front or like whatever needs to happen. But I think at, then from there, I don't remember exactly what happened. I don't know if you grabbed it or some someone protected well, now, the Strat. Now, okay, now let, let me take over from there. <laughs> yeah, because exactly. now from my perspective, right? Yeah. So I'm, I'm watching him just like you and I are watching him smash the rented guitar. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So now we're performing. So I'm kind of looking at the audience. I figure he's done. Yeah. What I didn't know, I kind of out of the corner of my eye saw him run behind me. Yeah. And then I looked at you yeah. and your eyes went like this. 
Because <laughs> you saw that he was going to get my 58 strap yeah, yeah. and reaching for it. Yeah. And when I saw you, you your eyes, you look okay. like you saw a ghost. I was freaking I out. I turned around and he had my, my priceless guitar, basically, yeah, yeah, yeah. by the neck. Oh, and so he, he started his running. hand on it. Oh, man. He got a guitar by the neck. And as he came yeah. by me, I grabbed him by the That's arm right. and grabbed the guitar by the neck and ripped it out of his hands. Yeah. And he just kept on running. Yeah. He just kept on running to the <laughs> middle of the stage. And I saved the guitar. But when, but that had I not save. seen your face, yeah. had I not seen your face, I wouldn't have known what was happening. Okay, good. Because I, I that was I'm glad that I, the signal worked because I was freaking <laughs> out. Because I thought I thought about it right before. I'm like, thank God that's not the strat, you know, because he was tearing <laughs> apart this like rented guitar. <laughs> But man, that, that was, that was amazing. That was crazy. Oh man. But an incredible show. And it was really an honor to that work was with a, you on that gig. It was man. amazing to do that with you, man. And it was one definitely a high point, you know, just being able to corral and wrestle all those people together yeah. and make it work. You know, it's yeah. not easy. Um, and you know, I've had, I've done a lot of those types of situations, but that one was really, uh, really a special night. Really yeah, cool. It was amazing. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you so much um, for taking the time and and talking with me. And, you know, I'm just such a, a huge fan on so many levels. And so it's just really, really great to talk with you, man. Well, I hope we can play together again one of these days, I right? I would love that. I would love that. Yeah, man. All right. Well, keep me in mind. I will. I will. And hopefully um, we'll get over this pandemic soon and we can uh, be in front of people again yeah. or with people again. All right. Thanks a lot, John. All the best. Congratulations right. on the baby. Thank man. you so much. Take care, brother. All right. See you. I want to thank John Oates for being on the show today. So cool to talk with him. What a great dude. What a legendary songwriter. And uh, before we go, I want to play a song off of his recent album. This came out just this year in September 2020. This is with his band, The Good Road Band. And this is live in Nashville. The classic track, Sitting on Top of the World.
Eric Krasno Plus One is hosted by me, Eric Krasno. Executive producers are RJB and Christina Collins. Audio production by Matt Dwyer. Produced by myself and Ben Baruch of 1111 Group. All original music is by me, and most of which are instrumentals from my album, Telescope, under the artist name Kraz. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email krazplus1 at gmail. That's K-R-A-Z-P-L-U-S-O-N-E at gmail.com. Send me some questions. Maybe I'll answer them on air. Send me suggestions of other guests you'd like to hear on the show. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.